everyone, and welcome to this episode of our podcast mini-series, Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and supported by Noosa Radio FM 101.3. I am your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As regular listeners to this podcast series will know, I'm being very authentic in my acknowledgement of the country and the custodianship of the land by countless generations of Aboriginal peoples. Repeating the words for me is not just tokenism, they're cause for reflection. In paying my respects to the elders, I'm also acknowledging the significance of their roles in sustaining knowledge, ways of knowing, belief and value that to this day remain central to Aboriginal cultures. An elder has been defined as someone who's gained recognition as a custodian, there's that word again, of knowledge and lore, L-O-R-E, the customs, the legends, the myths that have been held for millennia. Whilst there are differences within different communities, one common trait amongst Indigenous elders is a deep spirituality. A commitment to a worldview that at base means that there is more to life and indeed to the entire university, the entire universe, than meets the eye, so to speak. Some meaningful connection between oneself and something much greater that calls for a deep appreciation of oneness or wholeness and which demands the fusion and synthesis of the self with the other, of parts with wholes of the material with the spiritual, of facts with values, knowledge with wisdom, of actions with ethics. All of this begs a set of vital questions related to non-Indigenous Australians. Who are our elders? Who are the contemporary custodians of knowledge and wisdom and law? Who are those who, through the examples that they set, inspire us all to live our own lives in ways which reflect deeply ingrained and shared principles of wholeness, interconnectedness, and of respect for each other, as well as for the integrity of the whole natural world? These are questions that I want to put to my guest today, David Chittleborough, who, I would submit, has many of the very characteristics of the sort of eldership that we should be seeking to seriously explore. Good morning and welcome, David. Thank you, yes. David is a professor of pedology, which is a sub-discipline within soil science and biogeochemistry at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and he's also an adjunct professor at the University of Adelaide. He's also a Baha'i. As I understand it, the Baha'i faith is a religion founded in the 19th century that teaches the essential worth of all religions and the unity of all people. David, your research interests range from a very specialised study or set of studies into the origins, properties and distributions of soils and their management, particularly in Australia, right through to the immensely complex interrelationships and critical flows that exist in what are referred to as the critical zones. These, as you say, stretch from bed bedrock through aquifers, soil and the biosphere to the very top of plant canopies in the atmosphere, a sample of the wholeness of nature, so to speak. So let me start our conversation by asking you to briefly describe and explain more about this idea of 
critical zones and the work you're now currently doing in the creation of the critical zone observatory network. Yes, well, I think one way of uh, looking at what you've just said is to uh, understand that what we're doing is actually uh, monitoring and understanding the skin of the Earth. And that skin that sits over the... Uh, the Earth's surface is uh, really quite thin relative mm -hmm. to the whole Earth. Uh, and uh, that uh, near atmosphere right through, as you explained, to the biosphere and then underground to the, uh, through the soils, the unsaturated zone to the um, groundwater and then the bedrock, uh, is where life depends. Life depends on that. And uh, in the past, uh, up until fairly recently, we've studied that in small uh, individual uh, scientific units, mm -hmm. hydrologists, pedologists like me, biologists above ground, a atmospheric scientists. So that is the, um, the the basis of this critical zone science that is now emerging, uh, has done over the last 10, 12 years uh, since the concept of the critical zone observatories were established, first in the US, um, now spread to the other place in the northern hemisphere, is to try and overcome that uh, that uh, if you like uh, professional isolationism. I, I'm being a little bit broad there. Of course, yeah. we've always interacted, but this is a really conscious attempt to work together. Uh, yeah. So, uh, am I accurate in sort of quoting this as a slice of of the wholeness of nature? Oh yes, I think that's uh, that's one way you could look at it. Absolutely, yes. Hmm. And when, when you speak with each other, uh, do you have a common language or do you have to invent a new one? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I think uh, I think we understand enough about each other, um, hydrologists, um, <coughs> geomorphologists, pedologists like me, to, to be able to uh, work together. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the experience I've had so far, it's early days here in Australia, but certainly if I look at what's happened in the US, uh, where they did a start the establishment. And then, of course, in Europe, they followed with a range of critical zone observatories and the Chinese bought into it as well. Um, they, it, it seems to have worked quite well, yes. So what does an observatory look like? The observatory looks like, um, <coughs> well, if, if I give one example uh, that uh, I've been involved in, uh, at least in its initial stages, you see a big tower mm -hmm. uh, sitting on surface of the earth right. and that will go above the vegetation layer to at least 10-15 metres. So the one that I've been involved in uh, in uh, Calprim Station north of Renmark and in the Mallee country there in South Australia that would be about 20 metres high. Wow. Uh, the one down at uh, Moreton Bay that we're going to be uh, establishing on the university's campus down there at Petrie that'll be three, 34 metres high. Jeez. Um, so it's it's big because of the nature of the vegetation. Then uh, what you won't see, and we are only haven't gone underground too far with uh, the the station that I just mentioned at Calprim, we uh, around five sites. We're going to be going underground mm. with two big vertical holes that mm. will get down to the groundwater, hopefully touch wood. Uh, which at Calprim, for example, will be down around 40, 50 meters. Uh, and then we'll be putting uh, groundwater monitoring uh, equipment down there. But the really innovative um, aspect, uh, which you won't see again, <laughs> uh, 
is uh, underground a angled hole mm. which goes about 30 degrees to the vertical uh, and inside the hole that will be dug there or drilled will be a polyurethane tube within which which is just sort of expands to to um, contact the surface of the of the of the, of the hole mm -hmm. uh, and uh, within within that are sensors which will be sampling the unsaturated zone temperature and a whole range of uh, mm. measurements they are brought up to the surface and what you will see next to the tower is a big station which has got sampling equipment and we're monitoring that we can monitor issues uh, from a distance you know back in the lab and what happens with all of the data from all of those measurements? The data that will be coming from the uh, the five critical zone observatories that will form the foundation of Australia's network, <coughs> and we almost certainly they'll be expanded, uh, as I could explain if you ask the next question, <laughs> uh, is uh, that the data will be uh, tied into the terrestrial ecosystem research networks data Portable. Now, the Terrestrial Ecosystem Research Network is um, funded by the federal government, and it has a range of towers, small towers around, uh, and we've been monitoring um, uh, above ground for some time. Now, there's 14 of those around mm. around the country, and uh, there there is a, a a data portal which makes it available to anyone, and just to I mentioned to you when we had a chat earlier uh, last week that um, we've had over one and a half thousand requests wow. over the, uh, for information from our Cowprim station, which of course is now going to be expanded dramatically with underground facilities. Mm -hmm. hmm. So if I'm just a wanderer and not a scientist and I come across one of your towers and there's someone there and I say, what's this all about? What's its importance? What does it do? Hmm. Okay, so what it does is to understand how that system is working, what is happening to the water, mm -hmm. uh, for example. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a, a practical illustration to explain to someone who rolled up to our Calprim station, like you just said, and said, what's going on here? And um, we would show them a graph <coughs> mm -hmm. of the soil water. Okay. Over 10 years. We've been operating for 11 years, wow. monitoring continuously. Mm -hmm. Now there's rainfall on and off, as you know. It's in a semi-arid environment. But overall, the soil water store in the upper two metres is drying out. Wow. Okay, so are we seeing climate change? Well, whatever it is, over that period of time, we're seeing that. But there was a big fire that went through um, and we, we explained to uh, to Richard <coughs> standing there, and he might even see um, evidence of that big fire that just scorched everything, including our equipment, which we had to replace, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, uh, about four, maybe five years ago now, I'm trying to think now exactly when that was, but it scorched everything. You would have seen the f photographs from the top of the tower, mm -hmm. you know, just black. The, the plants came back well. They're growing. But hang on. The soils are drying out. Where are they getting the water? Obviously, they've got deep-rooted systems bringing it up. 
the question I would say to you is, answer, in answer to your question, is how big is that tank down there? And if, it's, if they're continually having to draw these trees, vegetation, from down there, um, you know, is, are we seeing a t could we see a tipping point for the vegetation? Mm. You're done. Because there isn't enough water in the surface coming from natural rainfall. Now, okay, we're going to be trying to answer a question like that and many others that would be involved. Mm. So the, the point of going all the way up to the treetops and the canopy uh, is to, to try to illustrate, amongst other things, the flows of water and of energy Perhaps and so on. You, you've hit it. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yes, we want to know about energy flows on the Earth's surface, uh, flows of water, uh, flows of nutrients, colloids, um, contaminants in some of the sites. We hope to have one of them uh, equivalent at the uh, Kimber radioactive uh, repository mm. if and when that gets up they bought the land there um, mm -hmm. but it hasn't been established yet I don't quite know where that sits at the moment but in order to monitor uh, for the uh, um, well-being of uh, and comfort of uh, people around there and let alone the rest of Australia that, uh, that it is a safe facility we, we would pretty much need to have a critical zone observatory type monitoring there Mm. to look um, at the dispersal possible, um, uh, hopefully not, of radioactive um, products. So there you go. It's that sort of thing is what that... But I'm going to ask uh, or make a, a, a sort of anticipated question from you, which is I've been getting quite a bit, and they think uh, people think, oh, that's a good idea. Hang on, Dave. You've got five sites at one uh, around Australia. It's a big... It's a big place. Uh, you know, you're going to get a huge amount of data at one site. What, what about the spatial scale? You know, how do you look at the landscape as a whole? And the issue there for us is to, um, well, first of all, we hope to have drones uh, to look at oh, really? uh, yeah. to to look at various uh, land features uh, around um, sensors. As you know, um, we might in various places where there are streams. We might put in-stream samplers. There's nothing like that, of course, at Calprim. It's a semi-arid environment. But more particularly, we want to be able to help um, uh, the calibrate the sensors that are on in satellites with our very accurate data. Mm. And uh, hopefully we can play a role there. Mm. There is a SmartSat CRC, Cooperative Research Centre, which is involved in in um, monitoring, uh, developing monitoring of uh, Earth's resources. This is an Australian initiative, and uh, we hope that we can um, um, interact with them. Yeah. Mm. Does this um, follow the logic that I sort of was suggesting at the uh, at the beginning that that science uh, and scientists have the potential now to be the new elders? Can we trust science? That's a big debate that's going on at the moment uh, throughout the scientific realm. You can't pick up a, <coughs> virtually can't pick up a, a journal such as Nature or Science, or the two most significant and important uh, science journals weekly that are published uh, without virtually reading something about the integrity of science mm -hmm. and how we can be uh, improve its integrity 
we have a peer review system that's worked quite well, but there's a range of of, um, of of new ideas coming as to how we can improve that. For example, that scientists might need to put their data up first and have that verified mm -hmm. before it's then put into a paper which then goes through peer review. That gives you just one example where a very close attention to the veracity of the data is required first. Now that's just an idea that's floating around. But uh, I think uh, I think sciences of all of the various disciplines, in the end the data the data talks. You know okay. you can you can pull the wall over the eyes through cherry picking data, a scientist might do that, uh, but in the end, it comes out. Hmm. Unlike perhaps other disciplines, I don't know. I can remember as a as a young scientist, I was I was told uh, given a very wise piece of of um, information that said that effectively science is about seeking explanation, not the truth. That the truth in the end is really almost impossible to verify. And this notion that science, therefore, is always making um, what we might call hypotheses, always making statements about, well, this is our best explanation so far, but there might be more to it yet. Mm. And that it seems to me that's a big impediment to people who don't understand science from that perspective. Right. Well, I think the best way of explaining that is to give the illustration and ask the person who asked that question, what's, what's the... Um what uh, version of the mobile phone you got there? Oh, I got an I got an um, an iPhone 13. Did you have an iPhone 11? Did you have an iPhone 5? Answer probably come back something like yes. Then you have agreed to the fact that science continually improves the our knowledge, our position. Because do you want to go back to that? Um, iPhone 5? <laughs> no thanks, because they're acknowledging the vast improvement of that and that science. Look, the way I explain it to uh, students, and you've asked a really, really, I think, critical question. If we think of um, what we know as a sphere, then what we don't know, what we, what, what we know we don't know, is the surface of mm -hmm. that sphere. And as we improve, and, and out there beyond the, the very surface is what we don't, we don't know. But what science is doing is continually expanding that sphere, the volume of that sphere. But at the same time, the surface area of that sphere is increasing. Mm -hmm. In other words, what we know we don't know is in, in, in increasing. And I would confidently say to you that we will never know everything. No. That no, sphere I, is just going to get bigger. I mean, that's cool too. But, that's, but, <laughs> but, but that, that volume of what we know gives rise to the improvements in iPhone 5s and to iPhones 13s or whatever. 14 now, I think, is out. So in some ways, scientists are custodians of ways of knowing as much as, as knowledge itself. Ways of knowing, yes. And, and uh, the methodology lends itself to disproving uh, things that, uh, propositions that are not, not correct, yeah. 
I mean, that's something also that is not generally known, I don't think. Uh, the fact that science really is about so-called falsification, where you're actually trying to prove that something is wrong yeah. rather than trying to prove that something is right. Well, yeah, the best example of that in recent times was the gravity wave. When they first saw that uh, that blip on the sensor in the US, mm -hmm. and then again in, I think it was Italy, they had the other uh, really important sensor they did the the researchers around the world there's about 50 of them physicists that are involved in that uh, they did not go straight to the media mm. they just they they kept mum mm. and they tried over uh, it's really interesting to hear mm. what they did to try and knock down the fact that that was not true <laughs> and they, they I, i'm not a, a physicist uh, in that sense anyway but uh, I, I I have read about the all the various alternatives they went through until finally they said, yep, that was true. And of course, they got the Nobel Prize for that amazing mm. discovery. Mm. <coughs> mm. But that's the way it should always be. And that's why I worry about some of the TV things you know, here on TV on 6 o'clock news. So, oh, great breakthrough. You mm. Know. Mm. I just wonder whether someone's touting things too quickly. <coughs> anyway, we'll see. So, so where does your faith intersect with all of this? Yeah, well, as a Baha'i uh, and a scientist, uh, I have a strong conviction, uh, and it's embedded in the, the Baha'i philosophy, that science and religion are uh, complementary. They, uh -huh. they are one. And religion... Uh, propositions in religion must um, must be uh, uh, put to the scientific, uh, 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 and if if science disproves that or shows it's not true, that religious argument is should be discarded. Mm -hmm. If you don't, then religion is just superstition. Can be just superstition. And of course, science without any spirituality, uh, we know where that can go. Of course. Uh, uh, in inhumanity, you know, abuses of the environment, materialism, mm. Mm. you know, mm. we don't. Uh, we, the two need to come together for the benefit of humankind. A strong belief, strong, very, very strong belief of the Baha'i faith. Mm. I'm not sure that's very well known, is it? No. There's a sort of tendency for for people to say, well, ever since the Enlightenment, there's this, been this major division particularly right. as a result of, of um, Darwin in particular and the evolution, the idea of, no, no, uh, evolution didn't occur, it was creationism. Yes, that's right. Yeah, religion has a, uh, did, a, did itself a bad, uh, a bad turn there. It still does, of course, mm. when it comes to, like mm. you've given an example of evolution. Mm. For goodness sake, uh, the Baha'is believe uh, very strongly in evolution. You know, I mean, give you an example. You get a mustard seed or a eucalypt seed do you see a do you see a eucalypt tree in there the potential is in there right, right? yeah so from that big bang which is our best understanding at the moment about the universe that we see around us um there was the potential to form quartz there was i'm taking a geoscientist evolution right. now one of my colleagues in the united states hazen written an amazing article about the evolution of minerals on Earth. Huh. And these g gradually expanded rapidly 
they weren't there at the beginning. Uh, and then, of course, when once the life began on Earth, the explosion in the number of minerals because of the interaction of um, biology and, uh, and the Earth's surface uh, uh, gave rise to massive ranges of, uh, of minerals that we never saw before. I'm just giving you a... But that's true of life, and humans are no different. I mean, that's a wonderful circle, really, isn't it? Because uh, <coughs> Aboriginals, as again, I understand it, have this lack of distinction between the animate and the inanimate. Mm. Uh, and, mm. you know, there is science effectively saying the same thing, that, that, that there is this interrelationship. Without the interrelationship, neither would advance the way they have. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that humans are animals or plants or whatever. They, 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 there was the potential mm. in there for them to have a soul, so mm. I'm going to... <laughs> take a big uh, leap here and that uh, uh, humans are distinguished from the animal kingdom through their intellectual capability mm. Mm. Uh, which is just not present there. Well I don't think it's a big leap I mean people all the time talk about the human spirit mm. and um, mm. you know everyone I think uh, in when conversations get deep enough will actually expose the fact that they hold values that in the end have some mysterious element to them. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. that we get to the stage of saying, well, I can't explain that, or this is really not the place for science, like, for instance, arguments about ethics, yeah. that one can say, well, science really has nothing to say about ethics. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, you, you can talk about the psychology of why we might have an ethical way of knowing, but it can't say what is the right thing to do under the any given circumstance. No, that's right. That's why um, that's why I see religion as being very essential for our life on Earth. <laughs> um, but by religion, I don't mean that structural, uh, organisational side. Often you hear now people saying that uh, um, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm. And what they really mean by that is that uh, they uh, they hold dear honesty, truthfulness, right. altruism, self-sacrifice. Yeah. And that's the, that's the essence of religion. And uh, you read uh, the Gospels, you read uh, the Quran, you read the life of Muhammad, you read the life of uh, Jesus, and you just a name mm. too. And you see that uh, the essence of their, of their message was one of uh, love, uh, consideration, mm. honesty, truthfulness, as I've mentioned, and all this other stuff that has turned so many scientists off, this r this uh, bigotedness and... Uh, uh, dogma. Dogma, mm. yes. And, that, and, and that's, that's the other principle that you mentioned at the very beginning about unity the, uh, as a Baha'i the Baha faith holds very clear. It stands distinguished from the other religions in the sense that we believe there's only one. Mm -hmm. Each one of those, if you let's call them manifestations like Moses or Jesus, are, are um, exponents, if you like, of the divine will, uh, structured and presented at a time to a particular uh, group and, and circumstance, very different. So the message is, 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 is muted and somewhat different because mm. of the mm. way in which it had to be explained to to the people at the time. But to, uh, unfortunately, religionists have put a circle around their particular religion. Uh, they have the truth and mm. uh, 
Well, two mm. fundamental problems we see that of religion. They claim uh, 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 exclusivity of truth and the finality. Yeah. The highs completely mm. dis dismiss that. Mm. Yeah, religion has evolved. That's marvelous, David. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for coming by, and I hope that uh, at some stage in the near future we can continue these discussions. Happy to do so. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you all for listening, and I look forward to our next episode when we will explore yet another aspect of getting to better together. Until then, goodbye.